Uh, let's stand and read some of our text here. Chapter 9. Familiar with what we want to look at today. Second Samuel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> and David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, and the, the uh, son of Amiel of Lodabar. And then Dave, King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, to the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And then the king called Ziba and Saul's servant and said to him, all that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. And then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of kings of the king's sons, and Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Well, as you know, we uh, pointed out back in First Samuel as he dealt with the covenant that David made with Jonathan, that there is something coming that all this is pointing to, and so at last we get to it. But we want to say something about chapter 8 before we get into this, because it kind of sets this up. Last week we looked at the Davidic covenant, which was a promise to raise up a king from the line of David that would establish an everlasting kingdom, and in doing this would build up a true and final dwelling place for the Lord. Uh, of course, none of this is new in the Bible. Uh, even in Genesis, there was uh, shadowy types or promises through Judah, someone shall reign. Here, it's, it, we're given more insight uh, as to it's going to be from David's line. Uh, so a lot of the New Testament is being set up for us. And of course, Jesus being the fulfillment of that. Um, but just the fact that uh, a lot of time was spent not just on the kingdom, but on the building this house, and so it's pretty obvious that it's a reference to the kingdom that we are in now. Jesus at Pentecost would be ascended on high, and at Pentecost and the Holy Spirit was sent, began to build this house, this kingdom, and of course someday we shall be able to enjoy it in its final state, right, after Christ comes back. So uh, these are things being set up for us, and 
covenant with the unilateral or unconditional covenant. The Lord made with David on our behalf. This is something that the Lord promised to do without man's help. And of course, that's certainly how it's laid out as we get the gospel and the Lord saves when he will. Well, chapter 8 um, deals with David's victories. Um, as David has now been established as the king and Remember, he wasn't allowed to build a house because he was a man of war. So in chapter 8, we see uh, Israel, the, the kingdom expanding. David, uh, you know, fighting these battles and, and being victorious over his enemies. Uh, and that's, of course, why the promise was made that Solomon would be the one who would actually build the temple. But uh, David here is, is and after being installed as king in a city to reign from, Jerusalem. He's now conquering his enemies, and, and as we see here, he is spoiling them. He is taking their riches, and he's bringing it into his kingdom. And so, again, it's a great picture of the gospel that goes forth, and God conquers the hearts of men and sinners and brings them, uh, brings their gifts, uh, everything into the church, into the kingdom, right, to serve the Lord. And this is what David is doing in height. He's given a, a covenant of salvation, and now he is strengthened to fight for the Lord. So notice verse 11 of chapter 8. These also, talking about some of the different nations around him, these also the King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations that he subdued. Right? So all that we have, when God saves us, for, uh, belongs to the Lord. Now, of course, everything belongs to the Lord anyway, but uh, it's not being used for the Lord. But we come in with what we have, what we're saved with, to serve him. Look at verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. So again, what a great picture of the church, of what it means to be saved, to be brought into a kingdom uh, of the Lord, and to uh, now have a perfectly righteous and just king. Uh, to reign over us. Well, uh, one more uh, thing to think about here. We get, kind of get into chapter nine. And uh, there's a few verses here that I think show this taking place um, in, in its relationship to Solomon. It says in First Kings four, for he had dominion over all the regions west of the Euphrates and Pipshot to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates. And he had peace on all sides around him. So this is the extent of David. He has uh, expanded the kingdom uh, all the way up to Syria and to the river Euphrates. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba. Every man under his vine and every and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. So when Solomon comes along, Solomon now is able to live in peace. David has conquered these nations, and now Solomon. Uh, is, is is reigning over this kingdom, and there and, and, and there's peace and there's prosperity. And so, uh, again, we see this in the New Testament. We see in, in the age that we're in now, we see the kingdom expanding, uh, people being brought into the kingdom. But there's a day coming, uh, finally, when the Lord comes back, when we shall enjoy the fullness of the kingdom. Right now, we're, we're not, can't enjoy the fullness of the kingdom. There's a lot of things we can enjoy about it, but not everything. But that day's coming. And in chapter 8, an interesting verse, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. 
Not one word has failed to all his good promises which he spoke by Moses the servant. So we're told, not only there, but also in Joshua, but finally here, that everything that God promised to Abraham and to Moses concerning the nation of Israel, they received by Solomon's day. So there's no promises future of that, that, that Israel's still waiting when it comes to the land. I don't believe it. I think that, that tells us that. Now, there were promises made in the, after this time through the prophets of a day when they will be carried away and then brought back into a kingdom. They will have a new covenant and God will reign it with them. There will be a kingdom there. But that is, that, that's separate from this. That is for speaking of, I think, the, the church and the, uh, the day that we're in now. So this, this is over with, and now the prophets are speaking of a new day, a new kingdom in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But I think as you start to put all these things together, it begins to formulate your, uh, your uh, eschatology, uh, you know, and your understanding of the age that we're in, the relationship with the old and new covenants, and so forth. So that just kind of gives you a little overview of of how I kind of put the Bible together. So anyway, that brings us to chapter 9. And when we get here, what we see, among many other things, is a microcosm of David conquering for the Lord. We've been shown in an overview of him conquering, but here's an example of that, we might say, as he looks for someone that he can uh, bless, and he finds that in Mephibosheth. And we see here that he wants to show mercy to someone because of his love and, and, of course, the covenant that he made with Jonathan. And as he finds one on whom to shower this love he has for Jonathan, uh, we are given a wonderful picture, I believe, of amazing grace of our, our very situation. Here's an example of when we read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, we see Christ. Uh, I was reading of one commentator who was kind of amazed that uh, that there were commentators out there who actually felt that David was just doing all this for Mephibosheth just so he could keep his eye on him. He didn't trust him because he was a, a, a descendant of Saul. He thought maybe there'd be rebellion. Well, the, the loving kindness is all through this passage and in the read, the motivation of David is all through that. And so this reminds us that this is not just a history book, although it is, because when you read this, you can't help but say, this reminds me of something. When I see David, for the sake of his love for Jonathan, giving a blessing those uh, who came from Jonathan, I can't help but be reminded of something, right? And so, uh, you know, to, to not see that and to not to understand how this gives us a great picture of who we are in Jesus Christ, to me it kind of misses the point. And as we said, uh, you got to kind of remember the covenant that, that, that all this is based on. Back in 1 Samuel 18, we read that Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. Do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So, Jonathan knew that David was, was going to be king, and the policy was that you would kind of kill all the 
descendants of the former king, uh, if you are you know, not from that family, lest there would be an uprising. If people wanted to Saul would, would try to instill, uh, install one of his descendants as king. And so Jonathan saying, look, when you become king, please don't kill me, because you know, David knows that Jonathan is not going to rebel. Verse 16 of chapter 20. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So you've got this covenant that took place beforehand. Two people love each other, and one promises, the one who's going to be king promises that everybody who, all your descendants, I am going to show mercy to, and I'm going to do that solely based because I love you so much, right? So you you can't help but start to see here that uh, David represents the father, Jonathan would represent the son, and based on their love for him, all who are in the Son, all who are in Jonathan, are going to be blessed. Not for their own sake, because we're going to see in a moment that Mephibosheth doesn't deserve any of this, but for Jonathan's sake, for Christ's sake, we might say. Mephibosheth is a ruined sinner. He uh, is crippled. He is, uh, he is unable to have any strength to do anything on his own. And again, think about, you know, because we're, we see ourselves in Mephibosheth. We were ruined in the fall. We were in Adam. Uh, and, and Saul kind of represents that, that Adamic, uh, nature. Uh, Jonathan, remember Jonathan is son Saul. Jesus had to become man. He had to enter into the Adamic race, right? Uh, for all this to take place. And so we are both from Adam, but we also are from Jesus. We, we, we are descendant of Jesus through the whole, through the new birth, right? So Mephibosheth is his ruined sinner, ruined by his connection to Adam, ruined in that he is crippled, unable to to uh, go to David and to work for David. He can only be a recipient of mercy. He has nothing to offer David. So again, it's not difficult to see ourselves in that. And then notice also that David seeks Mephibosheth out. So. Now it's time for this covenant to be put into effect, you might say. And what happens? Well, Mephibosheth isn't saying, look, I, I want you to, to take care of me, Dave, King David. No, David has to seek him out. Mephibosheth's busy doing his own thing. He doesn't know what's going on. And David comes to him. He should, in, in the grand scheme of things, assassinate Mephibosheth as a rebel. Yet he shows him grace based on the love of the covenant. Um, some, uh, and so, uh, yeah, I was going to talk about some of the commentators who seem to almost miss the whole point of what's going on here, it seems like. But we see in, in these verses that we read in First Samuel that David was to show mercy after he had defeated his enemies, which, again, we saw this in chapter 8, right? David has finally, he's finally, you might say, got time to, to keep his end of the bargain here, this end of the covenant. He's defeated his enemies in chapter 8. And so while the main point was that Jonathan would not be destroyed by David, it ends up being more about Jonathan's descendants, right? Because Jonathan, of course, is dead. Uh, The next thing we see here is that Mephibosheth doesn't 
earn grace. It comes upon him completely unexpected. A couple of verses in the New Testament that kind of points to all this, I think, in our situation. He, that is Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in his last times for the sake of you. So we know that there was that everlasting covenant in which the Father gave the elect to the Son to uh, redeem. And so Jesus was born in, in due time, when the time was right, he was born of a woman under the law, right? Uh, so that God could work out that salvation in time. First John 12, uh, 2, 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake, right? Not that we deserve it. It's because David loved Jonathan, not because he loved Mephibosheth as such. I mean, and again, it's not that he didn't love Mephibosheth. It's not that God doesn't love us. But our security and our salvation comes from this love of the Godhead. Uh, first, uh, I think this is, uh, I, I quote another section here. Not by works of righteousness, and this is uh, Titus, that we have done, but according to his own mercy. So you, you, you kind of see uh, all this being brought out in Mephibosheth. So there is something, certainly something of godly love that we learn here and how it commits itself towards the object. There is a promise, there is commitment, there is a covenant in, in this uh, working out this love. And, and, and today, this, this idea of commitment is almost a four-letter word. Uh, I was reading, I have never watched the movie Out of Africa. I can't imagine being with uh, Robert Redford and uh, see that uh, Father Streisand the movie. But I was reading that in there at some point, uh, I guess the question of whether they ought to get married comes up. Uh, and he says, and, and, and so he says, do you think I will love you more with a piece of paper. And, you know, if you've never watched that movie, you, you've heard this and seen this out there, might in movies or, or in the world, one way or another. Well, we don't need to get married because it's not going to make me love you anymore. Well, it's missing the point. Never mind the fact that you can get married in obedience to the Lord. But you can't prove love if you don't commit. You don't put that ring on your finger. That's why I say, you know, young girls who have ruined their lives because they're told by this man that I love you, uh, but I'm not going to commit to marrying you, right? And it messes things up. The Lord has committed himself to us. He, he, he has made a promise. He has taken an oath. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's, that's marriage. And that's why, of course, marriage is one of the ways that uh, all this is taught to us in our relationship with the Lord. Everything about this faithful love transcends uh, man's ideas, right? And uh, I think all this is emphasized in some of the added material that we read about, especially when it comes to uh, men here, uh, which means, you know, because I think Mephibosheth was of the house of men here. And that means one who is sold. It says uh, that he is of the land of Lodabar, which means no pasture. So here you got a, a man who is not only crippled, but he's sold into sin. 
the uh, has a he, he said live in a, a land in which there is no life. And does that not, you know, picture who we are before we come to Christ, right? In our in our natural state, there is a, a thought that Machir was Bathsheba's father, uh, and that when David had to flee Jerusalem because of absolute rebellion, the house of Machir uh, actually uh, supported David. Which would make sense, but that's kind of a fire. I don't know if that's something that can be proven, but there's a possibility anyway, in case you read the thing later on. But in verses six and through eight of chapter nine, uh, we everything about Mephibosheth shows that he knew full well that he didn't deserve such love. So again, this this is a, a picture of who we should be, right? If we're recipients of God's grace. You know, as Mephibosheth comes before David, it says, Behold, I am your servant. He doesn't say that Mephibosheth knew about the covenant. He doesn't come before David and say, Okay, I'm ready for you to get what's what's owed me. None of that. No, I'm your servant. I'm a dead dog. I don't deserve any of this. And so he, he represents so well the attitude that the true saint of God should have. There's a song that we sing now and then was the same grace that spread the feast that gently forced me in, else I had still refused to taste and perish in my sin. And, and we kind of see this with David, right? He, he gently brings the Mephibosheth in. He sends his servant out to get him and to bring him in because Mephibosheth could not do it on his own. And certainly in verse 5, we, in sending Ziba out, what David does not do is send word to Mephibosheth that if you can make it to the house, here's what you get. And that's Arminianism right there, right? This is God has sent his son to display how much he loves us and to provide salvation for us. And now it's up to us. If you can somehow in your crippled, uh, depraved state get to, get to Christ and believe uh, then you, he'll save you. Well, no, I've not, even, you know, if this is something the Lord inspired to be a type of Christ, and I believe it is, then that wouldn't make any sense at all. No, we're dead in our sins, and he comes and he brings us to himself. Uh, another thing that you see in all this, um, well, here, let me, well, is Ziba, the servant. He has a big prominent role in all this, and I think he represents the Holy Spirit because how does God bring the elect into uh, into salvation? Right, He sends His Spirit, and we receive the efficacious call, the effectual call that brings us into Himself. And again, we see this in the New Testament as well. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And of course, we know that this law is through the Holy Titus 3 5. He saved us not according to works done by us in righteousness. Mephibosheth uh, was crippled. He couldn't do it. But according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, to whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. You just see how all this is just lining up so well. Mephibosheth could not walk before David at all, let alone make it to him. It wasn't even 
trying to until David sent word for him and gave him the strength to Ziba to approach the throne of grace. And when he gets there, as we've said, there's no boasting. There's only begging. There's only, there's only the understanding that we are servants for the Lord. So Ziba is given charge over Mephibosheth. We find out that Ziba, again, another reason why I think he represents the Holy Spirit is because Ziba is what we would classify as a steward, right? Uh, he's not just a hired man, but he is a man of authority who has been given uh, stewardship over a vast uh, property. Uh, you know, and so, uh, and, and of course, this is picked up in the New Testament often in, in the parables and, and so forth. And so, Ziba has uh, uh, 12 sons or 15 sons and 20 servants. This is a man who has the resources to do what, what the king sends him to do, commissions him to do. Which again would remind me of the Holy Spirit, who is has the power to bring us to the Lord. Uh, you know, we call it irresistible grace, and there's a reason why it's irresistible. Because we cannot thwart God's plan. The Holy Spirit is, of course, powerful. And uh, David promises primarily that he's not two things really to Mephibosheth. First of all, I'm not going to kill you. There's a sense in which, by all rights, you deserve that, but uh, I'm not going to do that. So in our salvation, first of all, our sins are forgiven. We we will stand before the Lord righteous in Christ, and he, and he will not uh, kill us. Uh, we will not experience a second death as we deserve to do that, but we notice here that David doesn't say, okay, Mephibosheth, I brought you here just to tell you I'm not going to kill you. Right? You don't have to worry about me in judgment. No, he said, I want to extend kindness to you, and I want you to eat at my table uh, all the time, every day, and all your needs are going to be supplied. Ziba and his servants and sons are going to take care of your property, and it's, and they will use that, of course, to make you rich. In other words, they will provide for all your needs. So the Lord saves us, but then he, he He gives us eternal life. He gives us blessings in Christ Jesus, and we become what? Joint heirs of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> um, Romans 8.32 comes to mind. He who indeed his own son did not spare, but for us did all to deliver him up. How shall he not also with him? How shall he not also with him be all things with? Look, I'm pretty sure I copied that out of a, a, another translation that I, I probably had. I didn't realize what I was doing. That's obviously a little uh, awkward. I'm not sure which translation I got that out of, but uh, anyway, we know that verse pretty, pretty well, right? And I think again, it shows you. Um, this, this whole thing that we're seeing with Mephibosheth. And so in verse 10 of our text, uh, you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, talking to Ziba, and, sh- and shall bring in produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. Now, he's got bread to eat because he's going to always eat at David's table, but he's going to have a family. He's got needs. It, it, we're, we're seeing him that, that Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth is being made rich and provided for abundantly through what? The Spirit, through the spiritual gifts, through the, the work of the Holy Spirit. Man should not live by bread alone. God provides for us in, in every need, spiritual and otherwise. 
are meant. Um, someone said that if God didn't supply all our needs, we would only be concerned with self. If he gave us all our desires, we'd still only be concerned with self. When the Lord provides everything we need so that we can, as we've said before, I can give up things, I can serve the Lord at my own expense because I know that I'm going to be provided for because because my, the real riches that I'm going to enjoy are later anyway. So, the pivot chef is hardly eking out a living. And while the saints of God might sometimes be poor and, and destitute in some ways, we know that in Christ Jesus we sit at a feast every day. We, we have all that we need to have done in Christ Jesus and then go there with Christ. So our, our new life begins at conversion, not death. But as soon as we meet the Lord, we'll start to enjoy Him. As soon as we uh, come to the Lord in salvation, we begin to enjoy Him. We go from having no pasture to sitting at the King's table, from fear of judgment to peace and joy. And there's no bargaining here. Again, it's such a great picture of salvation because it's not like David saying, look, here's what I, here's what I'd like to do to you, but I'm waiting for you to accept my offer, right? And it's enough for the preacher to give the gospel, right? Here's, here's the offer. Now, will you accept the offer? Now, these are the claims of Christ that we tell people about. You will bow the knee or you will be sent to hell. He's the king, you know. And so there's no bargain here. David simply tells him that this is your new life because of my love for Jonathan. And so Mephibosheth goes from having no future to a great inheritance. Now he's still quite lame, but with the Holy Spirit, he is more than capable of doing whatever needs to be done. Um, you know, it, 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 uh, Paul says, it's in my weakness that the strength of the Lord is demonstrated, right? Uh, some verses that bring some of this out. Galatians 4 6. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of the Son into our hearts by Abba Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, with a son, and heir to God. So again, you see that makes a lot of this in that chapter. John 14 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will see this, he will doing whatever he's told to do. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take which is mine and declare to you all that Father has in mind. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare to you. So you see this through the Holy Spirit, all the, all the riches of, of God are being lavished upon us in Christ Jesus. I think the Bible picks up on uh, this as it, as it, especially in the Old Testament when it starts to foretell of David's greater son. Let's just read uh, some passages. Uh, Jeremiah 31. For thus says the Lord, <clears throat> sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts from the chief of the nations proclaim that Praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the furthest parts of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman, and she who is in labor together, a great company, they shall return here. A 
thing that we're seeing David in picture is bringing the uh, the, the weak, the lost, the, the elect to himself. And this is being now looking looking forward to Christ. With weeping they shall come, and please for mercy I will lead them back, and I will make them walk my brook of water. Again, they're lame, but you're going to make them walk by brook of water in a straight path, and this they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and these will be praised for the Lord. So again, you see, I think this in uh, looking forward to the church and, and the salvation that God is providing. In Micah 4, we read, in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those who I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth forevermore. And that's what we're seeing David Mephibosheth. Matthew 11. And said to them, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus answered them, for Jesus sent by John the Baptist, Go and tell John what you hear and see, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. So, again, uh, these, these things are used to describe uh, the, the, who we are in our sin, to what God, uh, Christ has done for us. And we finally, Romans 5, 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For sin, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. But more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by Christ. So again, I just, you know, there's just so many places you can look at to see how the New Testament picks up on these themes and brings them into Christ. So we're all ruined by sin. We still have nothing to offer the Lord except what he will do through us. Uh, what Mephibosheth now offers to David is done through Ziba. And so here sits Ziba at the king's table. And we were brought to the king's table in salvation. And we all sit down. Now we can't see the lameness. We're all one in Christ. And the, the, our, the lameness is kind of hidden by that table, you might say. We're all equal in God's sight. We all have one mightier than us working for us, helping us to bear fruit for the Lord. So physical handicapped or not in the kingdom, in fact, we might say that those who are handicapped in some way have even more ability to bear fruit for the Lord because there's more opportunity there. And as, as we said, Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong. Then last in that verse 13, so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now, he was lame in both his feet. As if we had, did already know that. I, I think it's interesting here. It's almost like it's just reminding us, because we tend not to be amazed at grace. We tend to take it for granted. It's just reminding one more time the lavish grace and love shown by David to take Mephibosheth and do this for him. And Mephibosheth did not deserve it at all. Well, this isn't the end of the story. Um, I think we have time just to kind of deal with this. There's just one more thing that's going to go on a little bit later. When David is pushed out of Jerusalem for a while by his son Absalom, it starts in chapter 16 on his way out of the city. 
Uh, it says in verse 1 of chapter 16, When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of the Bibbishep, met him with a couple of donkey saddles, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, and 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these things? And Ziba said, The donkeys are for the Lord's household to ride on. The bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, well, where is your master's son? In other words, well, where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Well, this is interesting now, because here David is kind of on the run. It's a big procession as he's leaving Jerusalem. His enemies are making fun of him. Here comes Ziba, bringing some gifts to help him on his way. And he says, oh, by the way, Mephibosheth is thinking this is an opportunity for him to become king. Well, of course, once Absalom is dead and David's on his way back in, we notice in chapter 19, verse 24, And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. Look at verse 28. For all, uh, of course, David, you know, asked him, you know, what's going on here. And for all, it says, For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king, but you, you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I than to cry to the king? So, you know, David says, um, well, Mephibosheth says, I guess we should have read verse 7, 27. Um, verse 26. He answered, My lord, O king, my servant, that's referring to Ziba, deceived me, for your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He slandered your servant to my lord, the king, but my lord, the king, is like an angel of God, who therefore... Do therefore what is right that seems good to you. For my father, all my father's house were but men doomed to death. So again, you see that there's a sense in which Mephibosheth was under condemnation to begin with. Before my lord the king, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I than to cry to the king? And then the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take all of it, since my lord the king shall come safely home. Has come safely home. That's an interesting thing going on here. First of all, it's pretty apparent, I think, that Ziba had lied about that. So Ziba is no longer a type of the Holy Spirit. Um, but, uh, and, and, and I think when David finds out what Ziba had done, or what um, Mephibosheth had done, he, he kind of understands that he's been lied to by Ziba, because Mephibosheth, no, I haven't, uh, thinking I was to become king, I haven't changed my clothes, I haven't washed my feet, I haven't done anything. I've been in mourning. So he came back, and David realizes that he's true, so he kind of restores uh, things back to the way that they were. Of course, interesting that he didn't uh, do something with Ziba, but David was uh, kind of like that. Uh, showed mercy uh, sometimes like that. But what I like about that is that it, his the way he lived, because Christ is a way right now. 
And we're waiting for Christ to come back, right? And so, in a sense, we're like Mephibosheth at that point. And the way he lived was in a way that looked forward to one thing, and that is the coming of his king, the coming of the one he loved back, to show the mercy to come back, to be restored. And that's, all, that's what he was living for. And when he comes back and he has the answer to David, David sees in his, the way he lives, uh, his, that he was truly a one who loved the Lord. He was not a rebel and he restores him back to what he had before. And so I think it supports what we said, what I've said, I uh, always have said about the judgment of the saints of God. Every time we find that in the New Testament, it is always based on our works. <clears throat> The evidence that we have lived for the Lord. Think about like Matthew 25. Uh, those who gave a cup of cold water to their brother and sister in need are the ones who enter into the kingdom. Those who didn't even know anything about the needs of a brother, you know, they're the ones who are cast off, right? So good works based on our love for the Lord aren't the basis of our salvation, of course. It's not that we're going to, according to how Good, well, we live when we get into heaven or not. That's obviously not the point. That's pretty obvious. That that's only by grace, right? But the judgment is, in other words, the separation will come based on the fact whether we demonstrated that we were believers and lovers of Christ or not. Good works aren't the basis for our salvation, but they are proof of our salvation. So when he met the king, on his way back in, he doesn't have an attitude that, oh, well, you got to forgive me because you promised to take care of me. No, do whatever. I'm yours. He demonstrates an attitude that David sees and understands. David says, only hope. It's a love between David and his father Jonathan being shown to him. And it had the profound effect upon him to the point that they lived differently. Right? We live differently. If we love the Lord, if we're saved by Him and have His Spirit, we must live differently in this world. And I don't mean that we have certain rules that we have to follow, the Lord doesn't follow. I mean, there's a, there's, there's, that's certainly part of it. We love the Lord, right? Going back to what we've been seeing in 1 Corinthians uh, 10. We love the Lord, but the lost person doesn't. There's got to be a clear and obvious difference in the way they live, the things that they live for, the way they speak, the way they dress, the way, the way they interact with people. There's got to be a difference. And, and that will be demonstrated enough so that at the judgment it will be obvious who is saved and who is not. To some degree. And that, and that, so there's just some things to think about and uh, we'll kind of um, we have some of this as an introduction this week for two or three weeks ago. Any questions or comments? We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your love to us this day and just the great demonstration of grace that as we read this story, we kind of see in, in a more stark detail the situation that we are in. And uh, Lord, help us never to lose that sense of amazing grace that's been shown to us that we might, that it might temper our speech and our actions and all that we do, we might glorify you in all things. In Jesus' name.